Hi, and welcome to this special bonus episode of Way Too Seriously, the podcast where we read Calvin and Hobbes and then take it way too seriously. I'm Paul Moffat. And I'm Susie Jerkins. I mean, I'm Jan Moffat. <laughs> I only wish. Um, hey! <laughs> today is a special bonus episode of Way Too Seriously. We're not talking about a movie. We're talking about uh, Calvin and Hobbes. That means, of course, that we met our Patreon goal! Yay! Yay! Thank you so much to our people for upping their support or pledging new support. So we get to do this cool bonus fun extra episode. We've been looking forward to it, yeah, and now we get to do it. Yeah. In a normal episode of Way Too Seriously, we talk about the movie first, objectively, second, our own personal enjoyment of it, and third, taking it... Way, way too seriously. seriously. Today, for Calvin Hobbes, I think it makes sense to switch the order of those first two things. So we'll start, I think, talking about Calvin Hobbes and our own enjoyment of mm-hmm. it. And then we'll talk a little bit, I think, about some background history of Calvin and Hobbes. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about why is this a good comic. Uh, and then we'll see if there's anything about Calvin and Hobbes that we want to take. Wait, seriously. Before we get into our personal histories, let's just, in case people don't know what Calvin and Hobbes is, let's just lay out the basics of it. It's uh, Calvin and Hobbes was... Uh, Daily comic strip, newspaper comic strip, that ran from 1985 to 1995. If you've never read it, it stars Kelvin, who is a six-year-old boy, and Hobbes, his stuffed tiger, who is alive, and sort of, and his parents, his friend Susie, his uh, bully Mo, and basically, it's just Kelvin and Hobbes. And it has influenced many other things, and we have a strong personal history with it, especially you. So why don't you get into a little bit of why you love Calvin and Hobbes and what your personal history is behind it. So I don't remember when I first experienced Calvin and Hobbes. I probably read it in the daily newspapers, uh, weekly newspapers that came. My dad always got the newspaper, and I always read the comics. And I think I've said this on a previous podcast when we mentioned the possibility of talking about Calvin and Hobbes. We talked about Peanuts before. Right. When we talked about Peanuts, I talked about Calvin and Hobbes. I read Calvin and Hobbes in the newspapers, and then I got the books. I was probably about eight or nine years old. Uh, Maybe, no, I was probably older than that, 12 or 13, Hmm. when I had a smattering of Calvin and Hobbes books and someone put it into my head. It would be pretty cool to own every Calvin and Hobbes book. So from that point on, I made that my goal Mm -hmm. without uh, money because I was a child. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't go out and immediately buy them all because I wasn't in a position to do that. But for years, I slowly built my collection of Calvin and Hobbes books until I had every single Calvin and Hobbes book, every single Calvin and Hobbes collection And read them again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have... So, I've owned every Calvin and Hobbes book. I don't anymore. Um, I've read Calvin and Hobbes. has been a part of my life for as long as I've been able to read, probably earlier. Mm -hmm. I've been a reader of comics of all kinds about that 
same amount of time. Like I also read Asterix and I also read Archie and I also read, as we talked about, Peanuts. And then when I got a little older, I didn't really get into superhero comics till I was an adult. But of all kinds of comics, graphic novels, whatever, Calvin and Hobbes is my first and truest love. Mm. Uh, and I got into superhero comics to the degree that I really considered doing my PhD about Superman. In fact, I started uh, writing my PhD was going to be talking about Superman. So my love of comics, even of superhero comics, is by way of Calvin and Hobbes. This is where I start with comics. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I remember reading Calvin and Hobbes when I was six, because he's six and I'm six. Hmm. Uh, and I remember, and I read Calvin and Hobbes now. Yeah. And our daughters now read yeah. Calvin and Hobbes, both of them, especially our older daughter has particular affection for Calvin and Hobbes. Mm -hmm. She has a stuffed Hobbes. Yeah, I was going to mention that too. My experience and my enjoyment of Calvin and Hobbes is that when I was quite young, I liked it because it was imaginative and compelling. And I was funny often. Um, I didn't find all of them funny because I didn't always get it when I was my yeah. youngest memories of it. Mm -hmm. But even the ones that weren't funny were like, it's it, there's an adventure element or a fantasy, a comforting fantasy element to like a boy and his magic tiger. Mm -hmm. And then as I got older, I found it the funniest comic, the funniest thing I knew. Mm -hmm. uh, and even still, some of the funniest jokes I can think of are Calvin Hobbes. If I think of like sources of humor that defined my earliest senses of what is funny, Calvin Hobbes and the Simpsons are about it. Yep. And then because I've always been a... Uh, pretentious um <laughs> i very early really found the philosophical depths of calvin and Hobbes so fascinating mm -hmm. all the times when calvin would go on a big philosophical rant i would come back and back and back to those strips and the the um moral philosophy when he was talking about, you know, right and wrong, especially in the context of talking about Santa Claus and the theology in Calvin and Hobbes, which was always kind of obliquely referenced. Like he didn't talk that much about God directly, but he's named Calvin. Mm -hmm. So there's a theological interest in Calvin and Hobbes that I would come back to again and again. And uh, I mean... It's hard to date things in my memory, but I definitely, quite young, found all of that so endlessly interesting. Mm -hmm. As well as, uh, like, all the art history that, that, even as a kid, I knew a lot more about literature and philosophy than I did about art history, somehow, because, I guess, of my parents' interests. Mm -hmm. So, the art history was all, and the art theory was all really new to me in a way that's kind of surprising to say, like as an eight year old that uh, the moral philosophy wasn't so new. It was more like, yeah, this is right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the art, the art theory was like, I loved all of it. Mm -hmm. 
How about, I've been talking a bit. How about you? What's your experience with Calvin Hobbes? And what do you, how do you feel about Calvin Hobbes? I mean, I love it, same as you. I don't have the same strong childhood history as you do. I definitely read uh, newspaper comics a lot as a kid, and Calvin Hobbes was one of them. I was more of a fan in my kind of teenage years of For Better or For Worse because of the family drama and the kind of romance of it. But I did always love Calvin and Hobbes and read, like, the books. I'm sure I checked them out from the library and read those kind of alongside Garfield and For Better or For Worse. But it wasn't until I was in university, I think, that I really read all of them, every strip, because you had them. You had all those comic books. And, and I recognized the, like... I thought it was funny when I was a kid, but I didn't realize that all the depth to it until I was an adult and was like, oh man, this was a, like, is exploring some really deep concepts sometimes. And sometimes it's just like slapstick humor. And uh, yeah, you had all the collected editions. So for a while there, when we were first married, they were all in our house and I read them all and I would do things like I would sit there and read them and laugh and you would be like, oh, what panel are you on? Like, what are you reading? And all I would have to do is read, like, two lines from it or, like, the punchline. And you would, like, roar with laughter because you knew exactly the strip it was. <laughs> and so it was kind of like this bonding thing of, yeah, you didn't even have to read along with me to know what strip it was that I was on. I thought about that. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. You would just, like, read a couple of lines. That was good times. Yeah, it was good times. Um, sadly, I mean, I was just thinking about how we... About uh, seven or eight years ago, we moved across the country and couldn't bring most of our books because it was just a long way to move. So we didn't bring our collected, your collected Calvin and Hobbes that you'd brought to, into our marriage from your childhood. And so we've slowly, since we've had kids been kind of building up that collection again. So we have a few of them that I found like at used bookstores and stuff. We haven't really gone out of our way to collect them again, but be. I hope so. I hope that someday we'll have all of them. Those mm -hmm. hardback bound three volume set or two volume set is, is pretty cool. I'd love to have that, but we'll see. Maybe someday. We will see. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, seeing our kids discover it has been amazing too. And like when our oldest, uh, started reading them and then started she is the kind of kid who's frankly she's way more of a Susie than a Calvin she is uh very obedient and has a strong sense of what's right and what's wrong and wouldn't really ever act like Calvin in regular life started read Calvin and Hobbes and started trying to act like Calvin trying to do like bad quote-unquote bad things it didn't, it didn't work at all it was just mostly funny she was reading them I think the first time she read them was during the summer and so she was reading all about the snowmen and she was like I cannot wait for it to snow I'm gonna make these snowmen and of course she never has because it's almost impossible to make the snowman yeah. even though we live in a place that has like tons of snow and the good snowman making snow like it's nice sticky snow yeah there's probably but, nowhere in the world where it's more possible yeah, to make Calvin Hobbes snowmen than here than here but still nope <laughs> she couldn't make them because they're impossible but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's such a great comic strip and such a, uh, I think what always, what I like best about media is 
when I learned the meta information about something. And so I always loved reading it, but reading like there's a 10th anniversary edition with extra notes about his life and why he wrote them. And that drew me in a lot. And then watching, we've watched the documentary, Dear Mr. Watterson, twice now. And that has made me even more like just love his comics. I feel like to say something about uh, those two things, I think the documentary speaks a little more to you than to me because there wasn't anything in the documentary I didn't already know. Mm. You know, like, so it was... I'm a big Calvin Hobbes fan. Let me tell you how great Calvin Hobbes is. And I liked it because I'm also a big Calvin Hobbes fan, but there wasn't any like, here's some, you know, information about, there was no information in it that I didn't, wasn't well aware of. Yeah. But it's still worth watching, dear Mr. Watterson, whether you're a fan of Calvin and Hobbes or a huge fan of Calvin and Hobbes, which are the only options. (laughs) Which are the only options. Um, But the 10th anniversary book, Mm -hmm. if I want to, if I can interject, yes, talk I'm, a bit about. I'm pretty done, so. That was amazing for me. We had in our house a Calvin Hobbes 10th anniversary book I used to have, and uh, someone in our house, uh, a Gary Larson mm. Farside 10th yeah. anniversary book. And they were both so interesting. They were both the same kind of concept of taking some classic panels and it was basically like a director's commentary track exactly on a comic strip. Yeah. So there would be commentary meta information about his process, about what he was thinking about as he wrote it, essays about his philosophy of art, his philosophy of what a comic strip should be. I mean, I loved Calvin and Hobbes already, but I had not thought about Bill Watterson. That's actually what I what I was struggling to articulate for a second there. Mm-hmm. I had always loved Calvin Hobbes, but I had never really given a second thought to Bill Watterson. And when I read the 10th anniversary, I loved Bill Watterson. Yes. Because his reasons and his the thoughtfulness that should have been obvious, but having him explain why he did things in the way he did and how um, conscientious and thoughtful and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess conscientious and thoughtful he was about yeah. his approach to his comic strip. Do you want to say anything about that stuff? Like, if you don't know, if you listeners don't know about Bill Watterson, what's his deal? Yeah, let's get a little into this more information stuff. He's, Bill Watterson uh, wrote Calvin and Hobbes, and he was an anomaly in the comic world because, or... Mostly an anomaly because he only wrote it for like 10 years. He took two breaks in those 10 years, which was unheard of. He uh, just wouldn't follow the rules of comic making. Yeah. I mean, specifically the the things that he did, he got in many fights with the syndicate. Uh, Newspaper comics are distributed by syndicates Mm -hmm. and Bill Watterson didn't want to follow the syndicate's rules of how comic strips could work because he thought that syndicates devalued comic strips and newspapers devalued comic strips. And he thought of comic strips as an actual art form that he wanted to have the room to explore in whatever way he wanted. And so the, the kind of two major things that happened early on in his career 
that differentiate him from anyone else working at that time are, are one, you mentioned this already, but he negotiated for sabbaticals and he took long sabbaticals twice within, you know, a short period of within like three years or something. Yeah. So that, uh, so they had to reprint strips. They had to reprint strips, and it was like other comic strip artists did not get that. But two, and more profoundly, he refused to mer- license for merchandise. Yes, that is a major thing with Calvin and Hobbes. So you may be aware of this, or you may not. There is no Calvin and Hobbes merchandise. There is no Calvin and Hobbes on a lunchbox. There's no stuffed Hobbes that is officially licensed by Bill Watterson. Mm-hmm. There's no cartoons. There's no... There's no cartoon and there never will be. There's no movie. There's no anything. There's no Calvin and Hobbes merchandise. Yeah. In fact, our daughter has a stuffed Hobbes that like a local craft person made at a, at a show we went to. Our daughter has a stuffed tiger who is legally distinct from Hobbes, but bears a striking resemblance to Hobbes in his stuffed tiger form. Very true. We'll maybe post a picture of it with this podcast. Maybe we will. But yeah, exactly. Like we can't, you can't just go to Amazon and and buy a stuffed Hobbes. That's not, they never legal, he never allowed that to happen. And why not? This is a thing that he talks about in the 10th anniversary book, and it there's longer and more complex reasons, but the two major reasons why he didn't want to license Calvin and Hobbes ever are, one, he thought that licensing dilutes the effect of the comic strip. So, for example, one of the main uh, ideas of Calvin and Hobbes is that Hobbes both is a stuffed tiger and is a real tiger. And in the 10th anniversary book, Bill Watterson says something along the lines. I'm not remembering the exact words because I don't have it in front of me, but he says something like the supposed gimmick of the strip is Calvin is Hobbes magic. Is it Calvin's imagination? I'd always avoided answering that because the point is just that Calvin sees Hobbes differently from how everyone else does. And I'm not going to answer whether that's Mm -hmm. real. Yeah, absolutely. But if there's stuffed Hobbeses, those stuffed Hobbeses are stuffed animals. And that starts to answer that question into a specific way. And if you sell a stuffed Hobbes and he looks like Hobbes in his stuffed form, you're answering that question. Yeah. And if you sell a stuffed Hobbes and he looks like Hobbes in his the way that Calvin sees him, you're answering it in a different way. And so that's just one example of he did not want that diluted. Mm-hmm. I feel... And then the second... Uh, reason that he's given is that he wanted control. He wanted Callan and Hobbes to be his artistic production, and he wanted to do with it exactly and only what he wanted to do with it. And even if what someone wanted to do with it was also good, his philosophy was, well, if you're good, if you want to do something good, do your own good thing. This is my thing. I'm going to do it in exactly the way that I want to. Yeah, exactly. And he, in the 10th anniversary book, he makes many not very subtle pot shots at Jim Davies of Garfield. <laughs> of Garfield. And says things like, you know, despite what some people say, approving someone else's work is not the same thing as making it yourself. Mm-hmm. So Garfield, you may or may not be aware, like Jim Davies hasn't drawn Garfield since basically it started he yeah. has a uh, jim davies productions and he approves people's work and other people do the actual drawing and it's mm-hmm. been that way for decades yeah 
but every Bill Watterson, every, and he says in the 10th anniversary book, he says this explicitly, anything with Bill Watterson's name on it, he thought of the idea, he wrote every word, he did every stroke of every brush, mm-hmm. he, it is all him, because he sees a comic strip as an art form and he wanted it to be his art. Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing how that's uh, been such a strong influence on other comic book, comic strip writers. And the world of the comic strips is, and the world of newspapers is kind of ending and it's not what it was, but comic strips have given way to web comics. And if you look at web comics and how strongly influenced many of them are by Calvin and Hobbes, you see his hand you see just like the far reaching uh, influence of Bill Watterson everywhere in both current comic newspaper comic strips. And then in the millions of web comics out there. And they're like, certainly he is not the first or the only person to think of comics as art. Yes. Um, But he may be the only, or at very least the most mainstream example of someone who's, who was making newspaper sh- comic strips yeah, and thought of comics as art. Yeah. And stood up for what he believed in. He never backed down from that. He never, he would, he could have made a mint yeah. licensing his stuff, but he chose not to. Yeah. And that's another aspect of like uh, my respect for Bill Watterson as a person is you know, like talk about integrity whether you think his position is right or not, he certainly never compromised it. Like, mm-hmm. that is what integrity is. Yeah. He believed something and he acted in accordance with it. And as you say, like, I'm sure Bill Watterson is doing just fine financially because his books continue to sell and are, you know, enormously popular. Yeah. But he could have. Like, can you imagine uh, what the licensing deal would have been? What the deal for, like, a Calvin and Hobbes movie even now. Yeah, even now. If there was a Calvin and Hobbes movie, Bill Watterson could make literally millions off of licensing easily. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. he has not done that because he, that's not what is important. Mm-hmm. And again, compare that to Jim Davies. <laughs> yep. Who, like, clearly that's what's important mm-hmm. to Garfield. And, like, Garfield's fine. Yeah. I loved Garfield uh, when I was a kid. Yeah, I loved it when I was a kid, too. I had a ton of Garfield books, too, when I was a kid. But there's an integrity and a depth of uh, conscientiousness and thought in regards to what he's doing that Bill Watterson has that not many people have. Mm-hmm. We were talking about one of the other ones who does seem to have had a similar uh, integrity is Jim Larson of Farside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who started at about the same time, retired at about the same time, also did a 10th anniversary book, and is also basically a recluse because yeah. he did, wants the comic strip to be the comic strip. Yeah. So do you want to, uh, I mean, we talked about Bill Watterson and why he's such a good guy. Do you want to move into a little bit more pseudo, uh, pseudo-objective? What is so great about Calvin and Hobbes? What is so great about Calvin and Hobbes? It has everything. <laughs> yep. It has, like, straight-up slapstick humor of him, like, making these uh, snowmen that, like, block his dad's car and things like that. And, like, and pouring the hose on the ground where his dad slips and falls. 
or Cal- uh, Hobbes attacking Calvin every time he gets home yes. from school is a great example of slapstick. And it's Bill Watterson's take on Lucy and the football. Yeah, exactly. He'll always attack Calvin. And it's the same, it's completely slapstick comedy. Okay, carry on. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting, I mean. It has, yeah, these slapstick moments. And then it also has all this like philosophical depth and this uh, these conversations that he has with Hobbes that are, and just like these one-liners that are obviously like so much older than he actually is. Like he's not six, he's 30, but like he, and, and then there, and there's the in-between stuff between slapstick and this like adult humor is, is just like the regular antics of a, of a small boy and his creative imagination. I was just going to say, if we're going to talk about the writing, I mean, when it comes to a comic strip, The way to think about it sort of objectively is you could talk about the writing and you can talk about the art uh, and the skill of each of those things. And if we're talking about the writing, you're starting with the humor and what you say about the range of specifically the humor uh, as a starting point is, I think, astounding. They're like in on past episodes of Way Too Seriously, when we've talked about movies, we've sometimes talked about a movie that was funny, but only had one kind of joke. We've talked about other movies that, you know, have a lot of different jokes that appeal to it, a lot of different senses of humor. I think Calvin and Hobbes is a absolutely excellent example of a piece of art, of culture, that appeals to every single kind of sense of humor. Like, there are puns, there are visual gags, there are the slapstick... There's sophisticated uh, allusions to literature and art. There's, you know, ironic inversions. There's madcap, zany nonsense. There's just like any kind of joke that you might want to make comes up, not just sometime. There's parody, there's satire, like, and satire of a lot of different things. So if you don't know anything about noir and Tracer Bullet is not funny to you, um, There's superhero comics with Stupendous Man. And if you don't, if that isn't something, if you, that, if none of the illusions make sense to you, like there's even allusions to soap comics. Mm -hmm. Whenever he plays House with Susie, it's drawn like Rex Morgan MD or whatever. And you don't have to, like, that illusion is one like line up when you're reading it in the newspaper. So this isn't, there is allusions to stuff that you have to have read or known or watched, but there's also allusions to stuff that is there in the thing that you're holding in your hand, getting Calvin Hobbes. Mm -hmm. And he just, his uh, skill as a comic writer is hard to overstate. Yeah, absolutely. And then... There's, from a writing perspective, there's also just the, like, I don't want to, like, go too long and too boring about it, but, like, the dynamic between Calvin and Hobbes as characters who are so well-conceived and can play off each other so incredibly well. Mm -hmm. And there's other minor characters that come in and are important, especially Susie, I would say. Mm -hmm. But that Calvin and Hobbes, there's a structurally they create conflict 
but in a very tender way. So they're complete, they're continually, their perspectives on life conflict with each other, but in a way that never means that. They always stay friends. They always stay friends. They always love each other. Mm -hmm. And it's sweet and heartwarming as well as being they're different enough that they're not clones of each other. Calvin is not, uh, I mean, Hobbes is not another Calvin. Like they have different voices. You would not, he has such a strong sense of the characters. You could not switch the dialogue in a Calvin and Hobbes comic. No way. Ever. No. I don't think ever. Yeah. Uh, so that's another aspect of the quality of it. Like mm-hmm. you can take even something as that we've praised in the past as much as Peanuts. I'm sure there are Peanuts comics where you could take some of those characters and flip them. Some of the characters are really well defined and some of the background characters are whatever. And he, Charles Schultz, like sometimes throws a line into the character, the vo- mouth of a character, and it doesn't matter which one. Yep. Bill Watterson never does that. No. At least never with Calvin or Hobbes. Mm-hmm. So. And, he, and his parents, too. You would never... His dad has a, has a very distinct personality, and his mom has a very distinct personality, and you would never throw those into the other person's mouth. And I was just thinking that as an adult reading it, you identify with the parents as well as with Calvin, and there's a lot to, like, the dad. When I read the dad, it's like, it's everything you want to say to your kid, but don't. <laughs> It's every, like, you just want to tell your kid that they bought you bought him from the store and have him believe it. Because, like, yeah, I don't know, at least I do. I want to be Calvin's dad, but I don't. That's, like, the evil part of me wants to be Calvin's dad. In the 10th anniversary book, uh, he says that one of the early criticisms that the strip got was that his parents, especially his dad, were too sarcastic. Yeah. But, like, I read Calvin's dad so differently as a father because, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's what I'm thinking all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I literally just read, before we sat down, I read the one where Calvin burns his toast and he's all upset about it. And his father's like, and yet life goes on. And <laughs> Calvin is like, says the guy who doesn't want to buy a new toaster. <laughs> and I'm right. like, it's exactly right. It's exactly like... Yeah, life goes on, kid. I'm sorry that your toast got burnt. <laughs> the, all the times that his dad, like, tells him these incredible tall stories, like the sun is the size of a quarter. <laughs> uh, and if you hold up a quarter, it's about the same size. Why does the sun turn red? At, why does the sky turn red at night? Because the sun catches it all on fire. Doesn't it crush the world? No, the sun's small. And that's catching the world on fire is why the rocks are so red out west like you get around arizona and they're pretty red (laughs) i'm like and i remember in the 10th anniversary the the caption that went along with that of commentary was just i imagine that the temptation to abuse parental authority must be very strong and yep it totally is it's kind of amazing to me that he wrote all those things without having kids yeah it's true i don't know what I don't think he does now, but I know he didn't then mm. when he wrote the 10th anniversary book. He didn't have kids. Yeah. Um, I imagine he probably doesn't now because, you know, Who he knows? was already yeah. well adult by the time. He <laughs> <laughs> but just that he captured being sick so well because he remembered being sick. I mean, he doesn't really capture six realistically. No. But emotionally. Emotionally, for sure. The experience of being six, presumably because he has experience with it. But I can just say he also captures the experience of being a parent to a child Mm -hmm. remarkably well for someone who wasn't one. Yeah. And then he would do things like 
have super emotional weeks where like their house gets robbed and he's left Hobbs accidentally behind on their trip. And he is so worried that Hobbs has been stolen. And of course he hasn't. Of course Hobbs isn't stolen. He's so happy. And the parents are just like distraught because of the break-in. And Calvin is so stressed out about Cobbs and you see how a child reacts and how it and how parents react in this very stressful situation and it, it through the eyes of a child and it's just like it's beautiful and it's heartwarming and it's sad and it's and there basically aren't jokes and there basically aren't jokes and when you remember that this would be for weeks of yeah. the, like several weeks of Calvin Hobbs is about their house got broken into and they're all really upset yep and they feel like they're not safe Mm-hmm. And Calvin's, it's most, it's, I remember Calvin's dad gets a lot of the emphasis in that storyline, but he like, he's really upset that Hobbes is, that Calvin can't find Hobbes. And he tries to reassure him that he himself feels like he's not safe. Mm-hmm. He can't keep his family safe. And then when Hobbes comes, like both the parents are as emotionally affected by that when he finds Hobbes as Calvin is, because yeah. despite the sarcasm, they love their kid and they want to keep him safe. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, and that's, again, as a parent, I can relate to that, to that idea of, like, when your kid has a strong emotional attachment to an object and you can't find that object, it's hard. It's even hard on the parents. If you don't, yep. if you don't have kids, you might not realize the depth to which you can feel strongly attached to your own, your kid's emotional burden, like. Yeah, and it's not just, you might, uh, that sometimes gets represented as if parents just want to shut their kids up and like, I want to get you this so you stop screaming. Yeah. But I think that particular comic strip really depicts more accurately, like, I love it because you do and I love you. Mm-hmm. And that I think it's his mom, the line goes into his mom's mouth of like, our family's whole. Mm-hmm. When should they find Hobbes? Exactly. And it's kind of sarcastic, but it's kind of sincere. Yeah. That like... They love Hobbes because Calvin does, despite them being eye-rolly and sarcastic and fr- in infuriated um, and uh, exacerbated by Calvin and by his doings. Yeah, exactly. And the other moment you talked about the house breaking in, the other big moment uh, that I remember of there not being a joke is when Calvin finds a dead bird. Oh, do, you, yeah. do you remember that one? Not that well, but... Callum finds a dead bird, and there's a couple of weeks... I mean, it probably would have been about a week of comic strips mm-hmm. where, where it starts... No, sorry, I'm conflating two things. There's one that was just one strip where Calvin finds a dead bird, and it starts with just this detailed sketch of a dead bird is the first panel of, like, a newspaper comic strip. And mm-hmm. the first panel is a sketch of what is clearly a dead Bird, And then Calvin and Hobbes just are like, he's so fragile and I can't believe and he used to be alive and now he's not. That's the strip. Yeah. <laughs> and there's another one that was uh, Calvin finds a baby raccoon that is hurt and he brings it to his mom and she helps him uh, take care of it, but it dies. Right. And that went on for what would have been weeks in the newspaper. And like, there's some you know, gags at the end of some of them, but most of it is just like a kid wants to take care of an animal and can't, and it dies and everyone cries. Yep. And like, 
it's so there's an emotional truth to both the hardship and to the happiness. And it's one of the things that um, there's a part in Howard's end where the character, I can't remember her name, goes to see the symphony and sees a Beethoven symphony and all the characters react to the symphony differently. But one of them uh, says like, there's parts in this Beethoven where Beethoven shows you that there's goblins and there's horrible things in the world. And then later on, he shows you joy and you can believe him when he shows you joy because he didn't lie to you about the goblins. Hmm. And when like these moments of real emotional truth and vulnerability in Calvin Hobbes, you can believe him about the jokes because he didn't lie to you about the sadness. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. It's really true. And like, amazing for a newspaper comic yeah, strip exactly that i like just unironically compared calvin and Hobbes to howard's end <laughs> <laughs> now that is taking it way too seriously we maybe have moved into the yeah way too oh I absolutely mean, we didn't talk about art at all uh, we talked about the writing all this yeah. time and i mean one of the things even to go back to what he did differently besides uh his not licensing it is a standard Sunday, Saturday comic, the big, the bigger style in Canada, they're on Saturdays. Yeah. In America, it's on Sunday. It's just we don't have thing. newspapers on Sundays. We don't have newspaper on Sunday. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so for in my world, in a Saturday comic, but in the States, in a Sunday comic, you, a comic book artist would be told to have, you know, you have a bigger comic, but your first two panels are throwaway and might get taken off because depending on the layout of the comic page and whatever, those first two panels might get deleted. And I, as a kid, had kind of noticed that, like, in a lot of standard comic strips, those first two panels in a big one didn't actually match the rest of the story, like in a Peanuts or in a For Better or For Worse, it didn't... High and Lois. Or High I, and Lois, I yeah. really noticed in High and Lois tends to make those tended to make those throwaway comics like v those throwaway panels very throwaway yeah like a two-panel gag that had absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the comic yeah or sometimes i'm interrupting you because i get excited <laughs> or sometimes in a something like for better or for worse it would just be repetitive like those first two panels would yeah establish something that then they would re-establish she would exactly. re-establish a panel later and you're like do you think i forgot yeah Sorry, but the, but the reason for that was because then the newspapers themselves, depending on which comics they subscribe to, because there's different and different newspapers, obviously, could delete those two panels to save space. Uh, Bill Watterson would refuse to do that. He would make these, he would refuse to do the standard, like, eight panels or whatever in a Sunday strip. He would do a giant circle in the middle. He would do a dinosaur that went through every single panel and it would make the syndicate mad at him for not obeying the rules, but he was doing it as an art form. He was showing off his skills at defying the gaps, defying the gaps between the panels, at defying the convention in a beautiful way. With also, but but staying within the comics, the comic strip genre and the comic strip art form, but pushing the boundaries. And more specifically, early, if you read all the Sunday comics, early on, he does follow the, yeah, the format. The and then he basically gets to a point where he says, forget this. And in the 10th anniversary book, which I keep yeah. talking about, he explains that, like, 
he reached a point where he said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, I'm just going to make my Sunday strip the way it is. You can't shrink it. You can't cut it up. It won't work. I'm not going to, there were formats that they were told to follow, you know, and he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use up this entire space. However, I feel like it. And your options for my comic are take it or leave it. Yep. I don't care if you don't buy my comic. And the syndicate didn't like that. And nope. he, newspapers didn't like it. He got angry letters from newspapers. And his opinion, what he says in the 10th anniversary book was, I don't like, I have nothing against the newspapers. Any pressure they were getting to carry my comic was coming from readers, not from me. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and he's, writes in the 10th anniversary book about how liberating it was and that he did it entirely to play in the new space to a Sunday comic might be 30 small panels. And there's a bunch of, there's a period of Calvin Hobbes where the Sunday comics will be like many, many really short panels that tell a story without any words Mm -hmm. or just the whole thing is one big panel. And it's especially right after he has decided I am not going to do this anymore, that he really kind of flaunts the space that he has, but does things that no other comic strips were doing. He also changes his art style. Like, you know, when you see Calvin and Hobbes, the standard Calvin and Hobbes, it's black and white. It's Calvin is this shape. Hobbes is this shape. Standard look to them. And he would do things in the Sunday comics, like, yeah, make it all dinosaurs. Make it all the, uh, like you said, like the Mary Worth or like Rex MD style comic. He would do a Spaceman spiff. He would do an entire landscape that looked nothing like his standard Calvin and Hobbes. It would be extremely different. But it like, he was an artist. He could draw this stuff. And why shouldn't he? Yeah. And you said early on, you said that the collections in the books are just reproductions of the newspaper comics. And I gave you a face because uh, that's not entirely true. The books are collections of the newspaper strips with a little bit extra. He added uh, always a little extra. Hmm. And the collections, like the Ultimate Calvin and Hobbes, the Essential Calvin and Hobbes, which are just collections of two or three of the books stuck together always have a several page uh, extra story that exists only there because he wanted to give the readers something worthwhile, but also because he now had a book that had no constraints at all. And you can tell when you read like the, the authoritative Calvin Hobbes or whatever, there'll be a story at the beginning where the panel is as big as an entire page of this book and is in watercolor and is like, he has spent a lot more time on the art of it. Uh, and you really get the impression that that is equal parts. Well, I got to give you something if you're going to just buy reprinted material. But also, I'm, I can fill this whole page and paint it exactly how I want. And I, you get a sense, I get a sense in Calvin and Hobbes that he really takes joy in the art of it. Mm-hmm. And like, and all his talk in, especially the snowman strips are the ones that he uh, uses to express his art theory. But like, he has thought about art theory a lot. And like, what is, and you know, he has opinions about avant-garde art or popular art or what 
and uh, do you make art that is appealing or that is alienating? And he has opinions about cubism and realism, and he's expressed them in the comics, but he also like paints, right? He doesn't just draw. He and I'm sure many comic strip artists are capable of doing lots of different things because artists are artful. Yeah, but he, but Bill Watterson found the uh, room made for himself, the room to actually incorporate that into Calvin and Hobbes and do it and explore himself artistically and make things that were beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is going longer than I <laughs> thought it would. And I should have seen it coming. Well, no, sorry. There's one thing I just wanted to mention that we haven't, uh, that I don't really know where it goes, but uh, the comic strip uh, Pearls Before Swine, I believe, is heavily influenced by Calvin and Hobbes, as well as Foxtrot. That's the other one. But um, Pearls Before Swine is drawn by Stephen Pastis, and he did a run one week where he got guest comic artists to draw, and he got Bill Watterson. And this is this is recently, so this is like 20 years out of his retirement. He got... Bill Watterson to come and draw a thing and he wrote about it on his blog and you could just like, I could feel his excitement coming off the screen as I'm reading Stephen Pastis talk about, I just called up Bill Watterson, I just sent Bill Watterson an email and he emailed me like a regular person (laughs) and he was like, and he talked to him on the phone and like, how do you get in contact with someone who's reclusive and isn't on the internet and isn't... You know, I just had to call him on a regular phone and talk to him about what I wanted and send strips back and forth. By mail. By mail. And like, you, I just imagine what it must be like to be a comic book, a comic strip artist who has idealized this person in a way that I do and I'm not even an artist. And then to talk, get to talk to them in person and get to draw a strip with them is amazing. Yeah. It is as it is amazing. I can't even think of an analogy because both Bill Watterson is so influential, especially the more seriously a comic book artist takes comic strips, the more likely they are to be influenced by and to idolize Bill Watterson. Yeah, exactly. So if you don't really care that much about comic strips and you might work with Bill Watterson, it wouldn't matter. Uh the more you care, the more you care about him. Mm-hmm. And then add to that that he's a he's a really uh, profound recluse. Yeah, that is, he you know he doesn't do interviews. He doesn't do. I think the one of the other very few things he's done since he retired is he wrote an editorial about Charles Schultz when Charles Schultz died. Yeah, but like he wrote an editorial about Charles Schultz. He did that those few. Comics with Stephen Pastis. Yeah. He does landscape painting that I don't think he sells. Yeah. He, he used to... You're going to say the same thing I am. He used to go and sign the Calvin and Hobbes books in his local town bookstore on the sly and then had to stop because they were selling them on eBay yeah. for hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, I'm sure. Yeah. So that's like... 
I just feel like he's always like he's constantly disappointed by the world's reaction to him. <laughs> and I, know, I don't know like, I don't know exactly what he wants. Because obviously he wants his work to be out there, but don't you just feel like you want the world to be good enough for Bill Watterson? Can't we all just live up to Bill Watterson's expectations <laughs> of us, please? I wish we could. <laughs> Is there anything I mean this uh has been very Meandering. Meandering. We didn't officially announce the going into the way too seriously <laughs> part of the show. Is there anything in the way too seriously that you want to? Someone mentioned to us when we were do- about to do this about to do this podcast that if we had any thoughts on those uh, uh, car decals with Calvin peeing on various car logos, right? And that we mentioned a bit about like. Anything with Calvin on it is illegal or is, you know, it's not officially it's licensed. It's pirated, exactly. And so those those stickers are not official Calvin and Hobbes things. And man, would they never would be. It is the stupidest of all things to have, have Calvin doing. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of who Calvin is. Calvin doesn't pee on things to be a jerk or to be like it makes him a bully he's not a bully he's the opposite of a bully like he's a bullied kid who is uh mischievous and sarcastic and gets into trouble and sometimes causes trouble on purpose but he's not that's not who he is at all and it's a perfect uh i mean it probably isn't because it wasn't it was created by some pirate and like whatever but if i was bill watterson i would point to that and say see (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is why I'm not letting you license anything of mine. Because look what you monsters do with it. Can't exactly. we all just be good enough for <laughs> Bill Watterson? <laughs> and I mean, like, like, the kind of people who put that on their car just seem like the farthest person who actually from who actually reads Calvin and Hobbes. Like, you just do not understand or read Calvin and Hobbes if you put that stupid sticker on your car. And that sticker is the worst thing. It's because Calvin uh, stands in public imagination especially used to when it was being published i think still kind of does mm-hmm. but he's there alongside a bart simpson right, as like yeah. he's a it uh, should be bart simpson like bart simpson sort of makes sense yeah he would pee on a car sure or something or pee on the opposite car that he doesn't that like he doesn't like i mean <sighs> even bart wouldn't really do that but remember early in the simpsons bart was you know, troublemaking underachiever, but he also had real vulnerability sometimes. Yeah. Calvin Hobbes, Calvin never evolved beyond that. Yeah, exactly. Calvin, all the way through, he's never a literal six-year-old, but he's always a child mm-hmm. who doesn't, like, I mean, he does do things out of spite, but they're childish in, like, they're childlike. Yeah. Rather than childish in the way of, like, peeing on your opposite brand of thing. They're like, he does things out of spite that are insignificantly futile. Exactly. Right? And he really a lot, like, I think, when I think of Calvin and uh, why that's so opposite to Calvin's character, one of the things I, one of the... Drip sequences, I think of, is there's one where he orders a beanie with a propeller on top. And for weeks of 
daily strips or maybe a couple of weeks of daily strips. Uh, he orders the beanie. He wants it. It has a propeller. He imagines it every day at school. He thinks about he's going to wear this hat with a propeller and he imagines it's going to make him fly. And then he gets it and puts it on and it just is a beanie with a propeller that spins and doesn't actually make him fly. And what's the point of having a beanie with a propeller on it if it doesn't make you fly? And he drops it and kicks it. Uh, like, kicking this beanie that he bought that doesn't make him fly is sort of spiteful in a childish way. Mm-hmm. That's the degree to which Calvin is spiteful. Yeah, exactly. You know, like he he breaks this thing of his that he was looking forward to and it disappointed him. And it's about, like that moment is a moment of crushing disappointment and loss of a kind of innocence that there is a magic in the world that he believed in. And bit by bit, he's exposed to the cold reality that a hat doesn't make you fly. And he reacts with some bitterness that is so understandable it is so touching it is like that's the furthest thing from i'm gonna pee on your car because it's the wrong kind yep exactly <laughs> i knew we would have lots of thoughts on that that's just about that uh <laughs> yeah yeah is there anything about calvin and Hobbes? i mean our bread and butter way too seriously is uh complaining <laughs> <laughs> no it isn't no it's is, taking things too so way too seriously is one of the things that we often do is point out um problematics in terms of the identity politics represented in a children's movie there the, are a lot of strips in calvin and Hobbes, and so it's hard to pinpoint exact things but there is the is Susie a problem? Yeah, is Susie a problem? I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> I think Susie kind of is a problem. She is. I think... Like, she's the shrew that we've talked about in previous episodes. She's she's the unfun girl. Yeah. We talked at the very beginning. I said, when I was a kid, I loved Calvin Hobbes. And you said, when you were a kid, you didn't. Mm-hmm. Is it relevant that... I was a little boy who read Calvin, saw myself in Calvin. You were a little girl who didn't. Yep. Um, so, Calvin is about a little boy. And one of the things about Calvin is that he, you know, he picks on and teases Susie because he likes her. That's never explicitly said, but it's reproducing that narrative that's so familiar and is actually really toxic, even yes. though kids might. I mean, I will give credit for that the fact that he never puts that into words is better than if he did. Yeah. But still reproducing that narrative of the way that Calvin can express his uh, affection, affection okay. his crush on Susie mm. is to pick on her. And the closest that the strip ever gets to putting that cliche into words is when Calvin uh, uses the duplicator to make a good version of himself and the good version writes love letters to Susie and gives her flowers. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying that that's problematic because it's reproducing this narrative that we've seen so often of boys will pick on you if they like you. We could maybe give credit for when Calvin is good, he acknowledges that he has a crush on and likes Susie. That's true. And his 
inability to do so is not something that she should ignore or that makes him, it, it is okay for him to do. Yes, that's a good point. But and, he, and Hobbes is the, is the, it uh, contrasts him and he likes Susie and he doesn't participate in the. And he's a part of, Hobbes is a part of the Get Rid of Slimy Girls Club. Mm-hmm. Gross. Gross. Um, but he never really, he continually undermines the agenda of that club. He sure does. And Calvin gets mad at Hobbes for not being fully committed to the girls are gross and bad and we don't like them, Hobbes. Yeah. And Hobbes is like, but what if they rub our tummies? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and if to, we see, sorry, I just want to say one oh, thing go before. Ahead. Go ahead. If we see uh, Calvin and Hobbes from like a psycho, a psychological perspective that uh their aspects of the psyche of this kid, mm-hmm. um, which is a possible reading for sure. Then Hobbes is a bit of a super ego who tells Calvin like how to how he ought to behave and how he ought to behave towards Susie is yeah. with kindness and turning her into a friend instead of an enemy. Yeah, I was going to say. Let's be clear the the narrative that. Uh, a little boy picks on a little girl because he likes her. Why is that problematic? That is, you are, when you say to a little girl, oh, he's just hurting you because he likes you. He's being mean to you because he likes you. That ingrains in children, in girls. And boys. And boys, exactly. That it is okay to treat someone that way in a loving relationship or in any relationship, that it primes women to be in abusive relationships. It primes them to go, well, he treats me badly because he loves me. This is how he shows that he loves me. And just because he uh, abuses me in some ways doesn't mean that he doesn't love me. And that is, and, and it primes boys and men to go, the only way to show my affection towards uh, the opposite sex is to cut them down and and treat them poorly and this is a harmful narrative to both genders and and uh should be you should never ever 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 say to a little girl he is picking on you because he likes you let's yeah. just stop saying that altogether yeah i was just going to say uh you said it tells boys is the only way i can show affection or it tells them this is an acceptable way. Yes, like, exactly. Even though there are yeah. other ways, this is one of the many ways I can show affection. It's by physically hurting someone that I, mm-hmm. like, no, don't, also don't say that to or around boys. Yes, exactly. Uh, saying within a boy's earshot, saying to a girl, he's picking on you because he likes you, is equally harmful. Because now this boy has heard, oh, that's an appropriate and acceptable way to show that I like someone. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just horrifying. Yeah, so exactly. Calvin and Hobbes, I think, uh, plays into that narrative sometimes, mm-hmm. though never uses those words to its credit. To its credit. Um, the fact that, like, in again, in the 10th anniversary book, Bill Watterson describes Susie, the way he describes Susie Durkins is, Susie is... Smart, uh, driven, um, 
I forget all the adjectives, but Susie is smart, driven, competent, a high achiever, the kind of girl I was always attracted to and eventually married. Hmm. Um, so I think from Bill Watterson's perspective, Susie is not meant to be all girls. He's meant to be a representative of his wife, of the, his type. Yes. That said, because there's only one girl in the strip and this is who she is, what we see is that boys are, you know, riding through the woods on their uh, wagons and having imaginative adventures and girls are wearing neat clothes and doing all their homework. Yeah. Right? That's a crappy narrative and he's not the only one to produce it, which mm-hmm. is why it's problematic. Like if he was, I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me. But that's a narrative that comes again and again. Boys will be boys. They'll do whatever. They'll get into mischief. Girls don't have that leeway. Girls will be perfect uh, mm-hmm. or else. Yeah. And that's, that's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's not okay to say that and to reproduce that. I think of, yeah, Susie is like Hermione. Yeah. And... Susie is like our daughter, who I wonder how much that is outside influence, inside influence, who knows? Who knows? But but I like that she idealizes Calvin, too. Yeah. And wants to be a little bit like Calvin and have a little bit of rebellion in her life, which sometimes she needs. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, little girls need to rebel, but Mm. not against me, please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the patriarch and you should do what I say. No, wait. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, again, the reason that Susie is a bright, high-achieving, rule-following kid is not a coincidence that that's a girl. It's because there's enormous social pressure on girls to behave a certain way that society doesn't put on boys. Um, Absolutely. And it's crappy social pressure that we shouldn't uh, approve of. Mm-hmm. And maybe Calvin and Hobbes exacerbates that. And so maybe that's a reason to leave it in the past. But it also has a lot of good in it and a lot of, and I think it counteracts that with a lot of great And let's things. talk, I mean, one more thing before we leave Calvin and Hobbes behind about the way too seriously of it. I mean, we could say, and maybe should, Absolutely everyone in Calvin Hobbes is white. There's no... Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't think there's even any background characters mm. ever. And frankly, all the women are kind of evil. Yeah. Mrs. Wormwood, his teacher, Miss uh, Roz, the babysitter, Susie, and then his mom. His mom least of all, but everyone else they're is all, kind of Calvin's enemy. I don't know that they're evil, but they're certainly all antagonists. Antagonists. Though then again... Everyone who isn't Calvin and Hobbes is an antagonist to Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin, this is one more way that Calvin is like Cersei Lannister. (laughs) What? (laughs) Blonde people who say everyone who isn't us is an enemy. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay, never mind that. Um, So, (laughs) everyone who isn't us is an enemy. That's both Cersei and Calvin's life motto. I can't even with you right now. <laughs> so we could talk, I mean, and like it's heteronormative because he has a crush on the girl uh, and their relationship is always has this subtext and blah, 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 boring, boring. We could talk about that. I don't think it's that interesting because it's rehashing incredibly old ground. And like, if I want to talk about Calvin Hobbes seriously, 
I want to maybe say a little something about why I think uh, it's too bad that it's always a boy, but why I think these anarchic characters are actually really good. Hmm. Um, in terms of, I want our daughters to be a little rebellious. Yeah. I want our daughters to learn a little rebellion from Calvin. And the way that Calvin is, again and again, he's um, opposed to authoritarianism. He's opposed to uh, conventionalism. That's a valuable lesson to give people because there's a lot of pressure that society puts on you to behave the way that society wants you to behave. And Calvin, is, um, everything from artistic freedom to kind of uh, philosophical freedom, Calvin is about forging your own path, finding your own way, doing things in a new way, letting your, trusting your imagination, like, and it is hard for Calvin often, mm -hmm. but I think there's a real value in that as a story. And I think that Bill Watterson in Calvin and Hobbes takes that story more seriously than a lot of, like, it's a, it's a story that we like to tell, but not believe in. Mm -hmm. Like they made their own path and their own path led them to exactly the same place that everyone else's own path always leads them. <laughs> right. Uh, but I think that the what I was saying a while ago about you can trust Bill Watterson in the jokes because he showed you the sadness, right? Mm -hmm. Calvin's rebellion, rebellious and individualistic and a creative and imaginative and that doesn't always lead him to happiness. No. That makes it a stronger narrative because we can believe the times that it does lead him to happiness because Bill Watterson hasn't lied to us about the times when it doesn't. Yeah. And he was willing to never let Calvin grow up and just end the strip without getting to any point. Mm -hmm. It just, they took, they left, they rode down the hill on their sled into oblivion. Into, into a white page. Into a white page. And that's the end because you don't need to know what happens to Calvin as an adult. You don't, it takes a lot of integrity to end a strip that way. And I really appreciate that he did. Yeah. There's a lot of integrity to just ending a thing. Yep, there is. On which note? <laughs> should we come to the end of this? Maybe we should come to the end of this episode of our if podcast. You, if you have thoughts about Calvin and Hobbes, we'd love to hear them. You can... Uh, I was going to say, text us on Twitter. I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> you can... Beep us with your beeper. <laughs> you can beep us with your beeper. Um, you can talk to us on Twitter. We're at WTSCast. You can email us, waytoseriouslycast at gmail.com. You can find us on Reddit, on Instagram, on uh, Facebook. All those links are in our show notes. Thank you so much to our pa patron supporters who... Uh, funded this specific episode to like bump it up to the goal uh yeah, we're incredibly grateful for that we are and you didn't uh, have to you didn't have to and it was and we probably might have even done it anyway Shh, don't say that <laughs> um you can find our patreon page if you want to be one of those supporters and help us meet our next goal patreon.com slash clockworkscast Thanks so much for listening to us gush about our favorite comic strip, especially Paul's favorite comic strip. So 
So I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. And remember, it's a magical world. 